Joining me on the show today is former Royal Marine and Invictus Games gold medalist, Mark Ormrod. Mark became the British Army's first triple amputee to survive the Afghan conflict. Mark joins me on the show to share his story from the beginning of his journey into the military and the Royal Marines, the incident in Afghanistan which resulted in him losing three of his limbs, to the family man and Invictus Games medalist he is today. To find out more, you can check out the Mark Omrod documentary on Amazon Prime. Have a look on Mark Omrod's official website for his book, and there's even a film about Mark in the making. It was an absolute honour to interview Mark. This was an episode that I wanted to do for such a long time, and it did not disappoint. One of my favourite interviews of all time. They gave me the thumbs up, and I thought that we were secure and as defensive as we could be. I started walking over towards my position, and as I got there, and I went to get down to my stomach, I put my right knee on the ground, and as it hit the ground, I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device. Welcome to the Schofield Stories podcast, unmasking masculinity and mental health. Join me, Calm Schofield, as I work to strike the stigma surrounding men suffering from mental health. Every episode, a new inspiring guest will share his story. And this episode is no different. Welcome to the Schofield Stories. Let's get started. Thank you for being here. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you for having me, mate. Appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, this is honestly a true honour. Uh, former Royal Marine, Invictus Games medalist, and the list goes on. So let's go back to the start. Was it always the military you wanted to do, and particularly the Royal Marines? i tell you what it is, mate. And it's funny because my daughter, um, she's just... Right now, as we speak, on our way to school to enter our last year of uh, compulsory education. And that's when I made the decision that I wanted to go in the Royal Marines. So I was about six months into that final year. And, uh, you know, GCSEs are on the horizon. And I don't know why, but I was walking down the corridor in school and I had this, like, epiphany. And I'm like, when you finish in six months, you've got to make a decision, mate. Do you want to go on to college if you do well enough in your exams to, to be able to? Or do you want to, at 16 years old, go out there into the big bad world and just start making your mark and earning your way? So I went off and I thought about it for a couple of days. And I decided that although I didn't dislike education, and as it turns out, I did pretty well. I got 10 A to C's and, and one D so I could have easily went on to college and then potentially university but in my gut I just knew I wanted to be out there you know I thought to myself at 16 years old I'd get in there early I knew I wanted a career as opposed to a job something where I could start at the bottom and then build my way up and learn skills and grow as a person and so that decision was made you know get the TCSEs out of the way start a career the next problem was, what am I going to do? So 
again, I went off and I thought about it for a couple of days and I narrowed it down to the police, the fire brigade or the military. For whatever reason, I gravitated towards the military. I think it was maybe the adventure side of it, seeing the world, getting away from my hometown. And again, I just, I love being able to grow as a person and to experience things. So as a 16 year old, I, I thought that if you want to join the military and you become a soldier, you know, and you go and, and learn to fight, you just join the army. You know, that's, I just thought if you want to wear a uniform, that's what you do. And I was very young and naive, you know, and even as someone who was born and raised in the, the town of Plymouth with a huge Royal Marines presence, I didn't know who the Royal Marines were. So I went down to the career center. I had friends who I grew up with, who I was in school with, who were already in the army. They were older than I was. Um, and they were already serving out in the tank regiment out in Germany. So I went down with one of those guys. We spoke to the recruiter, got the paperwork, took it home. Cause at the time I was under 16. So I had to get my parents to sign it. And then my dad told me that I had an uncle who had done 22 years in the Royal Marines, left as a captain. And, you know, I knew my uncle, I just didn't know his background. And he only lived up the road from me about 20 minutes up the motorway. So we jumped, jumped in the car, went up to speak to him. And I remember, you know, walking in his house, straight away there's this huge uh, frame on the wall, like a citation with an officer's sword on it with a green beret hanging on the end of it. And he sat me down and he talked to me about the difference between the Army and the Royal Marines. He talked me through his career because he started as a Marine, worked his way up, then he commissioned as an officer. So I went back the next week down to the Career Centre, spoke to the Royal Marine uh, recruiter down there. He sat me down and uh, this is how old I am. He put in a VHS cassette of, the, uh, of what the Royal Marines do. And that was it, mate. I was just hooked. I saw guys jumping out of helicopters. You know, they're on skis in Norway. They're in the desert. They're on speedboats. They're carrying big packs. They're doing section attacks. They're kicking down doors and spraying rooms. And I was just like, this is for me. You know, these guys are diverse. They do it all. You know, this is going to turn me into the ultimate version of, of who I want to be. It's going to give me skills across the board. So... I immediately took the paperwork, signed it, sent it off and, and just waited for a date. Yeah, so it's sort of the cliche is when you know, you know, and that's what it was like for you when you saw the Marines, was it? Man, I, you just, I just sat there watching. I, even now I'm talking about it. I sat there getting goosebumps, just watching these guys thinking, that's what I want to be. I want to be one of those. I want to be in the next recruiting video. You know, having been through what they've been through and learned the skills they've learned and aren't what they've earned. You know, and it, and it was, that was it. That was, that was my life from there. It was just apply, train, wait, get to what to do, keep training, keep training, keep training, learning, you know, Royal Marines history, current affairs, all that kind of stuff, trying to mix in with those kind of crowds. Um, nothing else mattered. No, no, no distractions, no BS, you know, Obviously, I went out and did what young lads do. You know, you party a little bit, this, that, and the other. But my main priority was always Monday to Sunday, Royal Marines. What was it like the initial training, the first, you know, intake of Royal Marines? As I read quite a lot of books by former soldiers, and I've heard some horror stories about how tough it is to earn that 
Greenberry, of course. Mate, if anyone tells you that they find it easy, then they're a liar. And, and I don't mean just from a physical aspect, I mean holistically. Like I'm, I, I live right where I am now, I'm only 45 minutes away by car from the commando training center. But when you get there as a 17 year old, you might as well be on the other side of the world. I was the second youngest guy in my troop, 64 blokes. The first two weeks you all spend in one room. So it's just one giant room with guys ranging from my age up to the age of about 32. Wow. everyone from my point of view seemed to have more experience than I did and knew what they were doing. I was just drowning in the sea of information. Everything is so fast paced. You're running around at half past five in the morning. You're getting hammered physically. Then you're in a classroom. You're learning all these new skills. You're rushing your meals in. You're working 12 hour days. You know, it's just like baptism by fire. And if anyone tells you that they find it easy, then like I said, that they're lying because everything from lack of sleep, you know, just everything, just being in that environment away from home, being physically exhausted, emotionally drained, it's just hard constantly and it, and it doesn't let up. How much of it was more of a mental battle as well as just the physical side of things, you know, the mental resilience to keep training and keep pushing even when you know, it's, uh, it is a struggle? And I tell people this all the time. I get a lot of people contact me on social media asking me for advice on starting Royal Marines training. And I tell them it is 80% mental and 20% physical. You've, you've just got to constantly be having a word with yourself, you know, and, and taking yourself off on your own and going, this is only temporary. Just break it down. You know, 30 weeks... I think now the actual training is somewhere in the region of 36 weeks because of the way it's been spaced out. But when I did it, it was 30. Now, when you factor in summer leave, Easter leave, Christmas leave, if you do it in one hit, you're looking at the best part of a year. So you've got to break it down. You know, you can't just go, I've got a whole year and this massive chunk and just hit it. You've got to break it down to, to months, to weeks, to the point where you're at days and you're just taking every day as it comes mentally trying to get through each day and then ticking that box and then celebrating that you've made another day and then looking forward to doing it again the next day, you know, and everyone's got their own different way of, of doing that. But that's what I did. I broke it down step by step, day by day, and just tick those boxes as they came, celebrated making progress through those stages of my training and uh, just kept telling myself that it's only temporary. You know, these, this, this being cold, wet, hungry, sleep deprived, constantly tired. It was, if I was lucky, one year of what was going to be a 22-year career. So it was, it was a small portion of that in effect. So I just kind of looked at it that way and, you know, got myself around some good people, guys that were stronger than I was physically and mentally who could help me through and just chipped away at it. Was there any points doing that initial training that you maybe had second thoughts or you thought, oh, is this for me, especially when times were tough? Every day, mate. Every day I sat there and thought, what am I doing? What, why am I doing this? What's the end goal? But then, and there were times when I got really close to just chucking it all in. Because, you know, when you live 45 minutes down the road, you think, I could be in my own bed tonight. 
you know, with a warm meal, watching a film, while all these idiots are getting run ragged and starving and wet and cold. You know, I'll just get on the train and I'll go back and I'll figure something else out. But what I used to do was project forward and imagine myself sat on that train because Limpston, the commando training center, has got its own train station. It's got a little platform and it's right on the bottom field assault course. And I imagined myself sat there with my kit bag as the train pulled off, watching all these other guys running the assault course and instantly regretting that decision. And that's what kept me going. I was just like, I can't feel that way. I can't get on that train and feel like a failure, you know, and be home in an hour and have to tell everyone that I didn't have what it takes to make it and then try and figure out another career. Yeah, but of course, for you, you did make it. What's the proportion of people who do and don't? Because I can imagine that you know, quite a lot do drop off from the, from the start to the end. Yeah, so 64 of us started in February 2001. And in October that year, when we passed out, um, of those 64, only I think 16 of us were what we called originals. So the, yeah. the troop was about 25 strong but only 16 of us have made it from day one all the way through to, to passing out in one go without sustaining injuries or through failing to make the grade when we were, when we were tested. So it's a, the, the attrition rate's massive and the dropout rate's huge. Um, from your perspective, what do you think is it that makes the most people drop out? Is it injuries? Is it the mental struggles or is it something else? It's the mental struggle. Because I've seen guys that are a thousand times fitter than I am, but they don't like being cold and wet for four or five days at a time. You know, it's, it's horrible. You know, you, you get thrown in a river one day and, you know, you're out for like six days. Day one, thrown in a river. You know, two o'clock in the morning, we've got to do a thing, what's called, and this is what breaks a lot of people. There's this thing called wet and dry routine. So you'll be in this, this wet rig. But then when you set up your harbour position at night and you're in the field and you're tactical or semi-tactical, you'll set up a, what's called a sentry routine, which is a, a watch routine between each section. And when you get into your sleeping bag at night or you go to go to sleep, you have to put dry kit on. You know, as you get out your bag and you take the wet stuff off, you put the dry stuff on. But then when you go back to working again, to doing your sentry routine or the next day to yomp into your next location, you have to put the wet stuff back on. So you imagine, you know, it's two o'clock in the morning, you get the shake to say you're on next. And then you've got to get up in the ice cold in the middle of winter out of your nice warm sleeping bag with your nice dry clothes on and then peel the wet stuff out of your bag and, and then put layer upon layer of wet stuff back on and then lay in the ground for an hour, just, just freezing and, and shivering, you know, numerous times throughout that training. And that's the kind of stuff that will break a lot of people. They could be the fittest man on the planet and just be breaking records and all the physical stuff. But a lot of them can't handle that or the lack of food or the lack of sleep, you know? Yeah, that's mental. Of course, with that, you know, the cold, the wet, the food, the sleep, you don't have to operate normally. You still have to operate as a Royal Marine, which is an added uh, pressure as well. Exactly. And, and there's a, I can't remember the exact saying, it's something like oppo first, section second, yourself third. Basically it means you put your, the guys around you before you. 
and you see a lot of people change when they're cold, wet and hungry, whereas normally they'll be a nice guy and they'll do anything to help you. When they're cold and wet and hungry and the chips are down, all of a sudden their mindset is, I'm first, everyone else can wait. And so you've got to not be that guy as well. You've got to be the guy that even though you're cold, wet and hungry, still put your apples and your friends before you and make sure they're all right. Make sure you keep on top of, you know, your weapon cleanliness, your kit awareness, you know, and you, you maintain high standards, even though you just really want to sit down and cry and go, no, I'm done. That's it. Take me home. You know? So it's, uh, that's what I mean. It's the mental side of things. Yeah. And you spoke to me about, you know, you want to look out for each other, look out for your art poses. You know, you always hear that you're working for the soldier in front of you and behind you. What's that like, particularly in something as prestigious as the Marines, that feeling amongst the Marines to be part of, it's a like a part of a special club of you described as before. Yeah, 100%. And that's what makes it so different because you know that, excuse my, my cursing, but when the shears hits the fan, you know, you look left, you look right, you know you're going to be all right. And that's not just in you know, when you're wearing uniform or maybe you're in a combat situation, that's when you're out drinking with the lads and, you know, and, and maybe something kicks off or you're down on your luck and you're down to your last penny and you've got no money and you, you, you're desperate. You know, you know, you can look left and right and those guys are going to look after you because you've all been through a shared hardship and a shared experience, which has bonded you in a way that, I don't think I've ever seen replicated anywhere else. Yeah, so it's a lot more than just when you're out there on operations. You know, it's not just that. You've got that bond regardless. And, and it's for life. And it's not even with people that you've necessarily met or, or struck up a friendship with. And what I mean by that is, as a veteran now, I could go on holiday to Florida, for example. And if I bumped into another former Royal Marine, even if I've never met him before, he's from a different generation to me, we will get on like that instantly, 99% of the time. And we will probably more than likely exchange details, stay in contact because we have been through that same training, that same hardship, that shared experience. You have that commonality, like I say that, I don't think I've ever seen replicated anywhere else in the world. And it's, it's a really humbling thing to be a part of, to know that you've got, someone's got your back 24 seven, 365 for the rest of your life. Yeah, that is incredible. I can't think of that being replicated anywhere. I really can't. That's what makes it special. I'm trying to wrap up this bit about the start of Royal Marines. How did it feel at the end when you finally got your hands on that green berry? you know, after all the hardship. It may, it, it's unreal. You know, and when you think effectively, it's just a piece of green cloth, right? So you shouldn't have so much pride in a material possession, but it's, it's what it represents. It's the 350 plus years of history that it brings with it. It's the, the tales of heroism from the guys that have gone before you. It's knowing that everywhere you go now, people see that green brown on your head and know that you operate at a higher standard, you know? And it just, to, to earn it, 
and to be presented with it and to know that no one can ever take that away from you it is massive mate and it, it it meant so much you almost kind of think you build it up to you know you come to the end of your 30 miler at the end of training you think that the heavens are going to open and this beam of light's going to come out of the clouds and this thing's going to descend from heaven and place itself on your head you know you hype up that much effectively you just get it thrown at you by, by a bloke <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know when you finish but I mean, it, it's just phenomenal, mate. But it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a strange situation for me and, and the guys I went through training with because we finished our training in October two thousand one, and like four weeks before that was when nine eleven happened. Right. Yeah. So we're all sat there knowing we've been trained to do this job, and actually we're going to have to do this job a lot sooner than any of us ever anticipated because. You know, four weeks after 9-11, we are in our Green Beret. We know we're going out there to test our skills and do what we're trained to do. Uh, what was that? Obviously, you know, you've got the Green Beret, but that puts an extra price tag on your head. You know, the Maroon Berry, the Green Berries, you know, that, that adding a, an element, an extra element of risk because there's a massive price tag on your head then. You mean going out to combat? Yeah. Um, no, because it, it just... You, you know what you're capable of. That's yeah. the beauty of it. It's an, it's an inner quiet confidence that you know what you're capable of, you know what he's capable of, you know what he's capable of. And it, it's, 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 I hope I'm describing it right. It's just hard to, to describe what it means. And you know you can go anywhere, you can operate anywhere, you can do anything. Um, and so I don't think it necessarily makes you, uh, I'll maybe misquote what you just said, but it doesn't make you like a higher target. I think it, people fear it. Enemies fear it because they know what you're all about as well. And they know you're not scared. You go toe to toe with anyone anywhere at any time. Yeah, that's really, as I've never thought of it in that sense. So that's why I love doing these interviews because it really opens my eyes as well. Mm. So then, Obviously, nine eleven happened after, you, well, just before you passed out. Then, what was it like as a marine during that time? Because there was a lot of suspicion and tension around then, anyway. From what I've been told, as I was born in two thousand and one, so I don't know experience wise. But what was it actually like? Yeah. Man, it was exciting because, again, you know, you are you're young, you're naive, you're cocky, and you you see this happen, and you're like we're going to go over there now and whip some ass, right? With no idea or reality of what war is actually like, you know, you just cocky and brash and, and arrogant. So we were, we were excited, you know, and, and that's kind of how it panned out. I passed out of training, went straight into what we call pre-deployment training for a tour of Afghanistan in 2002. I never actually went on that tour. Um, I, I still don't know why they, they scaled it back quite a lot. And all of us that were trained ended up staying in the UK. And then 2003 rolled around and we went out to Iraq on operation Telic one. And we were involved in that initial invasion, pushing over the Kuwait Iraqi border, going into there and um, hunting for Saddam. Oh, wow. Yeah. Again, that must have like you said been very exciting for you as a young new Marine doing something as major as that operation? 
it, it was exciting. And funnily enough, by the time it was over, it was actually very disappointing right. because I never fired a single round in three and a half months, never came into contact with the enemy. A bunch of the other lads did, you know, they pushed up to the oil fields into the palace and they had to go kicking doors in and doing all that fun stuff. But I ended up, although I was in the front line, at the rear of the front line. So ne I never saw anything. And I came back and I was like, is that it? You know, I've been through all this training. We, it's all been hyped up. I've been to war. I was 19 years old, came back and I was like, I was a bit disappointing. I thought I was going to be, you know, crawling around on my belly with a knife in my teeth, slitting people's throats, you know, like a movie star would. And I just basically milled around getting a suntan for three and a half months, you know? So I was a little bit disillusioned with it. Yes, but I'm assuming that in the future, you still did come across contact on operations for the next few years. Absolutely, mate. I mean, Afghanistan was, um, was a world apart. You know, every day you are, you're either in a firefight or you're defending from an enemy attack. You're out on the ground, you're patrolling. There's, you know, IEDs, there's mortar attacks, rocket attacks. You know, you're running around at like sometimes two o'clock in the morning, you, you hear a rocket alarm going off, you're getting up in your underwear, running around trying to find your body armor and helmet to fight off an attack, you know, from your sangers and your compounds. A completely different world over end of the spectrum. Wow, that's how many tours of uh, um, Afghanistan had you actually completed? Because you said it was a different world. Was that was that where you were mainly out, or mate? Technically, if you're saying completed, I've never completed any of them. Oh, right. <laughs> because yeah. Yeah. I only went out once, and it was a six-month tour. But I got injured three and a half months into it, so it was evacuated halfway through the tour and the lads this is this is what i love about it they still give me a bit of shit about it you yeah. know because only half a tour um so technically i never even completed one tour of afghanistan um but i only deployed one time down there yeah right so you said you got injured was this the 2007 christmas eve it was mate yeah, yeah so why don't you yeah. tell the listeners a bit about what actually happened so we deployed uh, September 7th, 2007 on what was called Operation Herrick 7. So there'd been a couple of, uh, you know, the, the military had been embedded in Afghanistan for a couple of years at that point and gained a little bit of ground and made a little bit of progress. And uh, we went in September 2007, like I said, to the, towards the tail end of the year. And, you know, we did all the, the normal things what a, a fighting infantry unit are tasked to do. So we're out there foot patrolling. Our, our overall objective was to win the hearts and minds of the, the locals there. So provide them with security, um, try and improve their quality of life, protect them from, from the Taliban, that kind of stuff. So we were out foot patrolling, you know, nearly every day, uh, conducting missions, disrupting enemy positions, destroying weapons caches, that kind of stuff. And then on Christmas Eve, uh, we were given a foot patrol to go on, which was very basic compared to what we'd done to that point. Um, effectively, we were told to leave the rear entrance of our camp 
in two sections. We were told to patrol around the, the immediate perimeter of the camp. So normally we would push, I don't know, two, three, four, five miles out. We'd be gone for six or seven hours, you know, doing different things. The idea of this was just to leave the back entrance of the camp, patrol around the perimeter, meet at the front entrance, and then finish up. You know, it was just a way of maintaining momentum when we didn't really have anything to do around that period. So it was Christmas Eve, like you said, uh, mid-morning. We were given the green light and we left. Uh, I, I was second in command of a section that went north when we left. The other guys went south. And we spent about five hours doing what we were tasked to do. So it came time, you know, we're now at the front entrance of the camp. Uh, it came time to finish up and get back into camp, ready to have a few days R&R to celebrate Christmas. And the section that I was in were positioned on a high feature, a high piece of ground, what we called the North Fort. Okay. Slightly beneath us was Ford Operating Base Robinson that we were working out of. And then beneath that... Um, quite a considerable distance beneath that was the other section that we left with. So because we were on the high ground, you know, we're tactically in an advantageous position because we can see everything around us. And if they come under attack or we come under attack, it's a lot easier to fight going down a hill than it is going up a hill. So our job was to give them what we call overwatch, which is protection effectively, while they got back into camp. They would then get behind the safety of the perimeter wall. They would give us overwatch. We would peel down off the high feature, go back in the camp and finish up. All standard operating procedures, very basic low-level stuff. So we set out to accomplish our task. The guy in charge took his half of the section, started giving them fire positions. I took my half of the section and I jumped into a little bowl, like a shallow dip in the ground in front of us. I thought if we get in there, get on our bellies, you know, we're going to be as well protected as we can be from any enemy, um, either seeing us or trying to attack us. So we jumped in. The guys started taking their positions. Um, when they were ready and they were happy and they gave me the thumbs up, um, and I thought that we were secure and as defensive as we could be, I started walking over towards my position as I got there and I went to get down to my stomach. I put my right knee on the ground and as it hit the ground, I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device. Uh, yeah. I don't really have any words for that because you know, that's, and what you said at the start, it was still a very normal or common routine that you were doing was nothing spare or nothing up to the ordinary no we we had no cause for alarm or anything no intelligence that told us there was any enemy activity in the area we had no intelligence about this minefield that was there and we've been there for three months so you know yeah. we, you'd think we would have had something because it was only about 200 meters from our position but um yeah no no cause for alarm just a what we thought was going to be a relatively easy, straightforward, um, standard foot patrol, yeah. you know, and uh, it turned out to be the complete opposite. It was the first, I mean, we had had, we had been in lots of firefights to that point. 
Uh, none of our lads had been injured or, or worse. This was the first major incident that we'd had in the tour. And uh, it was hell of a major incident. You know, I, I knelt on that IED, um, lost three limbs as a result. We had another injury uh, from the blast, a guy called uh, Stu, Milky, who had got shrapnel in his back and in his arm. It wasn't life-threatening. He was fine. He was back soldiering within two weeks. But yeah, it, it was hell of an incident. And, you know, it was intense. It, it tested us all. But just like I said before, although my life was severely in danger of being lost and you know ultimately I, I did die at one point and was brought back to life but despite all that going on the chaos the adrenaline the you know i'm not going to lie that the fear although the fear wasn't massive i i just looked left and right and knew that i was going to be okay because of the people i had around me i knew that they were so professional, so highly trained, and so good at what they do, that despite being in a 12-foot crater with six other devices around me and a really difficult evacuation ahead of me, and all this blood and claret and everything pouring out of my body, I knew I was going to be okay, you know, because those guys were going to help me and get me out because that's what they do. That's what we do. You know, we look after our oppos. And that is inspiring, the fact that despite all that, you still knew, because of who you are around you, that you were going to be okay. And what actually happened when you, you, know, you had the evacuation? Because you said it was a life-threatening injuries you received. So I mean, I'll give, you the, I'll give you the shorter version of it. Um, and the, the PC version, the PG version, if you like. Um, but effectively, I knelt on this landmine, it exploded. And when the dust cloud had settled and I realized what had happened, um, there was nothing I could do, personally. You know, I, mean, I was in this huge crater that had been created. The evacuation was difficult. All the lads were trained in that situation not to run in and help me, which sounds bizarre, but it's because they risk setting off other devices. Yeah. And they've all got um, predetermined, very crucial jobs to do in that, in that instance. So one guy is responsible for radio in the evacuation. One guy's got to set up a defensive cordon in case there's a small arms attack. One guy who's closest to me has got to get on his belly, get his bayonet out and, and prod the ground to clear a route for when the medic gets there. So, you know, I knew no one was going to come in and save me quickly. But once I figured out what had happened and what I'd done. And I kind of knew what the procedure was in my mind anyway. I just lay there and waited for the medic to get there. He got there very quickly, thanks to the professionalism of everyone involved. Um, put some tourniquets on my limbs and got me out of there. You know, and, and what, what happened during that time is, you know, my right foot was still attached to my leg. My left one was completely gone. My arm was still attached, but um, we ended up having to pick up my foot and my boot and cradle it on my stomach to get me out of there when I put me on a stretcher. I fell out the back of the vehicle that was evacuating me and the driver span around and literally just grabbed for anything he could grab to hold me in and ended up grabbing my femur bone that was poking out of my right leg. 
I got to the helicopter landing site. The helicopter landed, and then I died. And it was only when I got put on the back of the the helicopter, and all the medics on there had said because I'd showed no signs of life, had no pulse, couldn't get intravenous lines into me. They had marked me as dead while they got to work on the other casualty. It was only because one of the medics walked past me and saw my eye flutter, which meant that my heart was still beating, that they made a second attempt to save me and they came back and got to work on me and brought me back. But to then, for all intents and purposes, I was dead and they had, they had called it. They had said, no, he's dead, leave him. But it was just luck. It was luck that someone walked past me, saw my eye move, alerted everyone else, said he's awake, came over, got to work on me, performed some procedures on me, got fluids into me through my bones, through my hip bone, and revived me um, on the back of that helicopter. So as much high-level skill, professionalism, bravery, dedication, and everything that was involved from everybody that helped me there, there was a lot of luck involved as well in, in just a series of events and, and how it played out. How does it feel now looking back at those events? It, it doesn't bother me if, you know, if that's what you mean, like mentally I, I'm completely at peace with it. And I travel around the world telling this story in, in graphic detail um, with a slideshow presentation and everything. I've got slides showing my injuries, um, showing me getting operated on like an hour and a half after I was injured. I have, I have no issues with that. Um, and in a way, mate, you know, you, you kind of feel, you feel humbled in, in the way that if, when you sit down and break it down and think about how many people were involved in saving my life. And, you know, it just makes me proud at how professional people are, you know, because I couldn't do what they did. You know, I, I don't know if I could stay composed if I was in that section, but I wasn't a casualty. I don't know if I could stay composed if I was a medic on the back of a helicopter, you know, that's going this way and that way, full of sand and dust and there's adrenaline and people, you know, people trying to shoot this helicopter down from the ground. And, you know, how can you still do your job with all that chaos? It's just humbling to, to think that they did all that. And without them being so good, then I wouldn't be here, you know? But it also makes you feel like a badass that you can go through all of that and just be like, yeah, I'm not going to die. I'm going to, I'm going to survive it, you know, because the injuries were horrendous. Um, and I know all the medics that were involved and they've all said they, they, they've never seen anything like it to that point. And, you know, it was kind of unprecedented, the treatment they gave me and the fact that I survived that no one had ever survived it before. Um, you know, and you just got to, it just instills a new level of gratitude in you, you know, for people and for life and for a second chance. Yeah, as you were the first um, triple amputee to survive the Afghan conflict, if I'm right, yeah? Yeah, that's right. And um, as far as I'm aware, since maybe the First World War. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, yeah. Which, which made it difficult in respect of you know i've always been a big believer in mentors you know i think if there's yeah. an area of your life that you want to dominate 
the quickest and easiest way to do it is to find someone who's already done it and effectively copy what they did. You know, so if I wanted to be, when I was a kid, the greatest footballer in the world, whoever that was at the time, I would have just, they would have been my mentor, you know, but because I was the first, there was nobody in the UK that could mentor me, which made my rehab and recovery a lot harder because although there had been guys that had lost two legs before, we had the whole arm issue to deal with as well, which it doesn't sound like a big difference, but it's a whole different world. And so constantly through rehab, we're having to hit these brick walls and I'm having to figure out ways around it with my team and, you know, try and break through those brick walls and get to the next level of rehab. But fortunately, I, I found a mentor eventually in America and uh, I went out to meet him and, and that changed my life. Um, so I don't know if I'm skipping too far ahead here, but oh, um, yeah, you know, just having that mentor just opened up a new world for me, um, a new world of possibilities, uh, a new world of coaching, you know, and, and all that stuff, mentors, coaches, they just make everything so much more easy because first of all, you can see that things are achievable because someone's already done it. And second of all, you can learn from all their successes and failures and you can take what's maybe taken them five years and you can learn and improve as much as they did in five years in five weeks, you know, and, and that's what I did. So where was your mindset at doing your recovery? As I can imagine it would, be, it would be very easy to sort of slip into a dark patch with regards to after everything that's happened, and particularly when you were still looking for a mentor, I can assume it would have been very easy to not have a positive outlook. Yeah, I mean, it was up and down. You know, one of the bonuses for me is that I am a Royal Marine, and we are a very close-knit, family-focused organisation. Whether you're serving or retired, it doesn't matter. And so any other stresses that I may have had, like worrying about my family, my, my wife and, and all that lot was taken care of instantly from day one. The Royal Marine jumped in and they said, the only thing you need to worry about is getting better. We, we've got everything else. You know, when you never have to worry about leaving because you're, you're here as long as you want to be here. You don't have to worry about your family. We got that. We're going to look after them. You just look after you and get yourself better which helped massively with my mindset, you know, because it was just a huge weight off my shoulders and I could just focus on me and my recovery and getting better. But then there were points where like three and a half weeks into my recovery, you know, this, this doctor walks in 30 plus years experience in amputations and tells me that I'll never walk again because prosthetics are really hard to use. It, it takes a double above me amputee anywhere between 300 and 500% more energy to do anything than anybody. And he told me, you know, that I had the arm missing as well. I'd lost my, not only had I lost the arm, I'd lost my dominant arm. So I'd lost my right arm. All I had left was my left hand at the time. If you can see that scar. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's where shrapnel tore my palm open. I only had two fingers and a thumb to get around with. And he told me that in all his experience, he'd never met anybody who only had one leg missing above the knee that had success using prosthetics because 
they took so much energy and they were so painful and they were so difficult to use that people just gave up and got in a wheelchair. So, you know, mentally, from a mindset point of view, that knocked me on my ass. And um, that, that was a stretch to come back from. But fortunately, I met some other amputees, uh, double above knee amputees, guys with both their arms, but, you know, I, they were up walking and they were out there living. So that, that gave me that hope that I needed to know that things were going to be okay. And then the second time, you know, that really got me was when I first left hospital and saw myself in the full length mirror. Yeah. So prior to being injured, I was six foot two. At my heaviest and my fittest, I was 16 stone. I had, you know, a lot of my identity was wrapped up in being what I would term as like an alpha male, you know. So, you know, I, I was big, I was strong, I was fit, I was healthy. And the first time I saw myself in a full length mirror, you know, without my prosthetics on now, I'm like three and a half feet tall. And I think at the time I was nine stone three in weight because I had lost three limbs and I was fighting off infections. And I, and I literally looked like a skeleton with a bit of skin on. And so I spent the entire night crying, you know, because I, I, how have I gone from being this, you know, the elite six foot two, 16 stone, fit as hell to this, you know, three feet, five, nine stone, just looking like I'd crawled out of a grave site, you know, it, and I just couldn't deal with it. I just thought I'm 24. I've got to live the rest of my life like this. And how am I going to do that? And so that knocked me on my ass as well. But there is, there's a lot to be said for having a good cry and a good clear out, you know, when you're stressed out and how good it makes you feel. And so I got up the next day and I'm like, right, we're done. I've had the little pity party. You know, I'm feeling a lot better. Let's figure this stuff out. Let's go and create a plan with my team. Let's find what's available. Are there prosthetics? Can I use them? Is someone else having success with them? Let's develop a plan and let's go execute it. And that was it. From, from that day, it was all about goal setting, planning, executing, and moving on to the next thing. And it sounds like the mindset and what you get through being a Marine helped you a lot with that from my perspective anyway. It, it did. And do you know what helped more is that, that there was a time when I was lying in my hospital bed and I, I think it was, when was it? No, it wasn't my hospital. No, maybe it was. I think I was still in hospital at the time. And I remember thinking, I think the Royal Marines at the time were 346 years old. And I remember thinking that I had never heard or read about anybody in that prestigious history that had let the team down and had quit you know who was famous for for giving up or, or you know dropping the standards and I thought well I'm not going to be that guy I'm not going to be the guy just because I've got this new challenge I'm not going to be the guy that, that, that quits and lowers the Royal Marine standard because I still am a Royal Marine and I will be for the rest of my life whether I'm in a uniform or not you know this is part of my identity this is what people are going to know me for and I'm not letting the side down. I'm going to maintain the standards, maintain the discipline, maintain the level that I work at. I'm just going to do it now in my rehab and my recovery. Yeah, that is incredible. I still love how you said earlier that despite, you know, your first 
triple British amputee and everything you went through, that you still get stick for not completing the tour. I think that's something that <laughs> really, I still love that. That's going to stay with me. But despite yeah. all this, that's brilliant. It really is. And that's the dark humour as well that gets you through things. Yeah. No, it's, it's unique to the military, having that, that banter and that, and that dark sense of humour. Yeah, I can imagine. How long was the recovery process with the prospect? Uh, I'm not sure how to say it exactly. Prospectics, is that prosthetics? Prosthetics, yeah. How was it actually learning to use them and you know, not proving the doctor wrong as such, but proving you, you can use them how long is that process um i'll, I'll be honest with you mate it, it's a never-ending process yeah. even now you know i haven't used a wheelchair since the 9th of june 2009 but it's still an ongoing process of refining your skills you know learning new skills using new technology um trying new activities you know like i went paddle boarding the other day i've never done that before learning how to adapt that run your prosthetics but initially you know the day i mark as the day i became independent is the 9th of june 2009 that's the day i left my wheelchair behind and marking my calendar as the day i overcame my injuries and, and dominated them uh, and from what I've seen on your social media, your Instagram, etc., that having prospectus hasn't held you back at all. You know, you've still done everything, whether that's you know sport activity or just normal family activities as well. You just carried on. Yeah, I mean, you've got to. Like I said, you, I mean, I kind of made it sound like it was easy recovering and doing the rehab. It wasn't. It, it broke me numerous times and you know, made me question myself and my abilities and was it all worth it? But like with Royal Marines training, I broke it down. I got good people around me. I kept on pushing forward every day. And now I'm just grateful that all this stuff exists and that's what enables me to go out and do all these things. And so that's why I like trying them all, you know, and there's, there's, Thousands of people, I imagine, that have gone before me that have built these prosthetics, that have figured out how to do this, figured out how to do that. You know, and, it, and it's all there for the taking, you know, to, to live your life at the highest level. Yeah, and um, moving on from that, the Invictus Games as well. As, if I'm right, you won 11 medals, but in an interview, I heard you say that you don't really know what's going on with any of the sports. You said you don't really know what you're doing exactly, but you still manage to get 11 medals. How, how do you manage that? Yeah, I kind of I jumped into that. Um, so it was 2016, and I was sat here, exactly where I am now, uh, in December. And that's usually the time when I start drafting out my goals and what I want to achieve the following year. Yeah. And it hit me that Christmas Eve 2017 was 10 years since I'd been injured. And I had never done any adaptive sport to that point. I, I was still training in the gym and keeping myself fit, but I'd not competed in anything because none of the sports appealed to me. But I thought, you know, a nice way to mark a decade post-injury would be to do something I've not done before. So I'll have a go at these Invictus Games. You know, they were two years old at the point. Um, I had seen friends compete, win medals, move on in their personal recovery, I'd seen their confidence grow. I'd seen them 
blossom effectively because of using sport as part of the recovery plan. So I had a little look into it. I spoke to a couple of the lads. I applied, not really thinking that I'd even get in the team because I, I had no, I was in none of those circles. I didn't know anybody. And like you said, I didn't know the sports. I didn't know the the etiquette. I didn't know the rules or any of that stuff. So I was a complete outsider. But I applied. I was fortunate enough to get in. And then I just picked sports that I thought would require brute force and ignorance and fitness. I thought, I'd, you know, like, I thought, I thought, okay, rowing, how hard can that be? You jump on a rowing machine, I'm fit. I'll just go crazy for four minutes and I'll win. That was my attitude. But I was very quickly proved that that wasn't the case. <laughs> yeah. um, and that there are strategies, there are techniques there are things you have to do. Because I just thought, oh, you're only going backwards and forwards on a rowing machine. It can't be that hard. Yeah, but it was. Um, and so I had to really knuckle down and start trying to learn how all these sports work. You know, and what the rules... There, there are rules as well. You know, I didn't know any of the rules. Um, so I learned it. I trained. You know, the, the training was ridiculous. You know, I was training twice a day three or four times a week in my garage, doing cardio at five in the morning, strength and conditioning in the evenings, training for specific sports on the weekends, traveling all over the UK for rowing camp, swimming camp, hand cycling camp, all that kind of stuff. Just trying to learn it and just trying to give myself the best possibility to, to win medals because that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, and that, well, you want to give yourself the best possibility to win, and you definitely did, as well as 11 medals. You got the, um, was it the Achievement Award or something along those lines as well? Yeah, they, um, so they give out two awards at the closing ceremonies. One is for, I'm not, I'm not going to say like best nation, it's like most inspiring nation. So whichever country had all these, you know, the feel-good stories. And then they'll give out a similar award for an individual athlete, which is pretty cool when you imagine that there were like, I think 22 countries, you know, numerous athletes from each country, they pick one person to get this award. And, and I was fortunate enough to get it. And, it. and it was brilliant. You know, that kind of, the medals are great, but that award for me was, was the icing on the cake. Um, and, I, and I was very, very proud and grateful to, to, be selected for it yeah, and um, I think it's fair to say that that was another way of representing and serving your country as well as so you did it as a marine and then you were you know part of the team GB at the Invictus Games as well for your country yeah and that's it you know it was another way to wear a uniform have a union flag on my chest and represent my country and, and that's what a lot of the guys in the games you know, they gravitate towards that because we join the military because we want to serve. Our careers are cut short for whatever reason, injury, illness, sickness, whatever it may be. And there's just a part of you that, you know, loves your country and wants to represent it and carry on serving it. And when you think that's taken away from you because you can no longer wear a military uniform, but the opportunity to wear a different kind of uniform comes up, you know, you take it and you take it seriously. Absolutely. And 
as we sort of come to the end now, I'm very conscious that I've taken up enough of your time this morning. That lately, you seem to be doing everything. That you're speaking, you're you're mm-hmm. writing books, you're podcasting, you've got a documentary, I believe, on Amazon as well. So, yeah, what's that like? Sort of not having celebrity status, but being recognised for who you are and for your achievements. Um. I'm not going to lie, it's, it's kind of cool. Yeah. But it's cool in a way that, you know, I, the thing I always need to be clear of is I have had a lot of help to get me to where I am. You know, from day one, from those guys on the ground through to now, current day, you're talking about books and everything. You know, I have ghostwriters. I have, you know, people helping me with stuff that I don't know how to do. But it's really cool to now have this, small platform that I have where I can just live my life the way I would have done it even if I hadn't got injured but in a way that I can put out there and people get value from do you know what I mean and they can look at it and go that's really cool that that guy can do that you know despite this challenge and that challenge so maybe I can go out and do this in my life and and that's what it's about mate it's about it's not Look at me. Look how many medals I've got. I, I, I don't really care about that, mate. I, what I care about is when I get the, the inbox message on my Instagram from a teenager who says they were struggling at school because, I don't know, they were, well, they were bullied or something. And, you know, maybe I went into that school and did a talk and it flipped their mindset. And now they're like super motivated and bullying or, or whatever issues they got are irrelevant. They focus too much on it. And now they're switching their focus to something more positive to take their life to where they want it. That's, that's the cool thing about it. That's what I love. And now my last question, because that's all you know, inspired, you've inspired me this interview, is what's next for you? What's next for Mark? So like you say, mate, we're, we're juggling multiple projects. I'm, before we got on this uh, podcast, I was just, I'm editing my first book, Man Down. So I'm on chapter 10 now of editing that because we are three quarters of the way through my second book. So I'm trying to get these both completed at the same time so that we can release them around about the same time as a film we're now going to start making. Um, I signed some contracts during lockdown about turning my story into a a movie. So we're doing that as well. Um, which is really exciting because I'm a, I'm a big movie nerd. I've, I've been a movie fan since I can remember, just watching films and taking inspiration from them. And I want to really make a film that can do that for other people. As well as, you know, juggling being a father of three. I've got a full-time job with the Royal Marines Charity. I'm working with Reorg, doing jujitsu on a daily basis. So... I'm really lucky to be in a position where I can do all these things that I'm passionate about that force me to grow, but I can also make a living from, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for coming on here today. I really enjoyed it. I really have. I'm not going to forget this interview and it's been an honor. It's been an absolute honor to speak to an interview with you. Oh, thank you, man. Thank you, thank you for bringing me on um, and for talking about lots of different things as well. Normally, I just you know talk a lot about the day I got injured, um, which is cool. But I, I love talking about all the other things too. So thank you for for clearly putting in the research and diving into some other areas.
doing episodes like this, finding out more about your story is why I love what I do. The more I research, the more I'm excited about this episode. So Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a true, true honor. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Schofield Stories podcast. Without you, my incredible listeners, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. So I hope you know how much your support means to me. We're on a mission to strike the stigma and unmask masculinity and mental health. And just by tuning in and sharing this podcast, you are playing a key part. Schofield Stories, as always, is proud to support Stop Holding Back, a personal development charity for people who stepped out, a charity and a cause very close to my heart. Finally, if you want more, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and the official Schofield Stories website, theschofieldstories.com. That's all from me today. I hope you really enjoyed this episode, and I can't wait to speak to you again soon. I've been Calm Schofield. You've been listening to the Schofield Stories. Bye for now. Be imprisoned before I'm able to break out.